Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, which is convenient and not entirely coincidental since this is the Remnant Podcast, and um, which is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters and to read our web-only content, which is all of that is free, and most of our newsletters are at least partially free. And if you can afford to uh, um, get past the paywall, that would be wonderful. We're watching all of these other media companies doing these huge layoffs. And we're not in that situation because we have runway and we're not advertising dependent and all of that. But um, we really appreciate any support that you could provide. And if you can't, totally understandable in these trying times. But you can still support us just by going and checking out the free stuff, which is there, pl- which there's still plenty of. Um, so, the feedback from last week's audio G file, and I think we need to come up with a new name for this because it just gets too confusing with calling it a G file and what's the G file, and then there are other people who think that the Wednesday newsletter shouldn't be called the G file, and yada yada yada, and there's brand dilution and whatever, and it's just all getting way too complicated. So uh, you can call this the audio G file you want, or we can just call it um, Jonah's Week in Review or Theodore. I don't know. We'll come up with something. Um, So I just finished writing this week's actual authentic G file, um, the Friday newsletter. And um, I kind of agonized about what to write about because, frankly, I'm sick of talking about coronavirus, I kind of feel like Yosemite Sam when he's a castaway um, and all he has to cook are coconuts. And he's like, mmm, fricassee of coconut? Coconut soup? Mmm, toss coconut salad? Fresh coconut milk? <laughs> New England boiled coconut? Ooh, um, but anyway, all the punditry is like Corona this and Corona that. And it's um, the only other stuff that breaks through is Trump and Corona this and Trump and Corona that. And I've been doing my share of it and I stand by everything I've written, but I'm just getting kind of weary of it. And I, I, I can tell from the feedback from a lot of people, uh, they feel the same way too. Um, no one really needs to be reminded that this crap is going on. And um, even though we got to follow it, uh, I think a lot of people are craving some escape from it as well. It's kind of like background radiation. Um, so anyway, I kind of agonized about what to write the G-File about this week. Um, I, uh, I started by sounding like I was going to write something I've written a million times before um, about, you know, there's this really annoying cliche. Al Gore used to say it all of the time, but he's not the only one. Condoleezza Rice has said it. Lots of people have said it. But it was this thing that the Chinese symbol for crisis also means opportunity. And it was always seen... It it drove me crazy because, first of all, I hate when people talk about um, the opportunities that a crisis creates. Um... If you told me, if my house was on fire and your first response is, this is a great opportunity to get a new living room set, I get pretty pissed off at you. Um, And yet so many people like to do this thing where they say, you know, this crisis is an opportunity to do all of these things we couldn't do um, when the crisis wasn't going on. And it seems to me the only legitimate opportunity during a crisis is to deal with the crisis and nothing else. And um, so this sort of, pain in the ass cliche was really dominant in our politics until the Obama administration, which I think uh, Rahm Emanuel deserves primary credit for. Uh, He replaced um, the Chinese character thing with uh, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, which people of a certain age might remember as a throwback to the old uh, ad that said a a mind is a terrible thing to waste. same, I have the same objections to that, um, but it's and it's, but it's less annoying in part because the Chinese symbol for crisis doesn't also mean opportunity. Uh, there's actually a great Wikipedia page laying this out, 
but it's become such a cliche for people that it's actually trickled back into China or into Asia and people say it is. And it's kind of like, I didn't write about this in the G file, but it's, it's a, it's, it's a little bit like how, like when I was in college, um, I, you know, I took a lot of basically women's studies classes because I went to an all women's college. Uh, my first year was the first year they admitted men. People have heard me tell that story a million times, but you know, a lot of the poli-sci and history classes were actually taught by women's studies professors. And we were drenched with this thing. Some people admitted that it wasn't really true. Other people just sort of glossed over it, that, you know, history is really sort of a bastardization of his story. And that's why we should call it her story, to illuminate the marginalized figures in, in world history and all of that stuff. And, um, like I get the point that women's history was ignored in history, but um, and there are legitimate correctives to that. Um, but at the same time, the word history, at least last time I looked it up, comes from like the old French histoire, and the male pronoun in French isn't his. You know, it's it's one of these made up, um, fake things that sounds really brilliant, and it's sort of like the prison philosopher sketch from uh, In Living Color, where, you know, they just play games with words to make it sound really profound when it's just not true. And so I think it's kind of funny that we have basically import, exported this asininity to China. And as I note in the G-File, uh, they get the better end of, the, of this sort of, you know, triangle trade treacle stuff because all they got was a stupid phrase for motivational speakers and we got the coronavirus. So thanks a lot. But I didn't end up writing about this crisis is a terrible thing to waste stuff because there'll be plenty of opportunities to write about it again. And it kind of dawned on me in part because of my conversation with Cass Sunstein this week that I should uh, try and, you know, I keep talking. I talked about it on this podcast last week. I talked about it with a bunch of people, Jim Garrity on the Dispatch podcast, talked about it a lot about my concerns of over, over the bad things that are going to have a long half-life after this, you know, in much the same way that, um, you know, the New Deal, uh, you know, is still with us and all of that. And so point is made. And I thought maybe it would make sense to actually look at the stuff that might be good that has a long half-life after this. And I talked about this a little bit with Cass Sunstein about this idea of how respecting and valuing people's work um, is kind of getting a, a much needed boost. And it's an interesting thing. You know, um, I talk a lot, partly because it's my job, partly because it's what I'm interested in, about um, the divisions on the right and, you know, the differences between paleocons and neocons and reformacons and these cons and those cons and now the post-liberal Catholic integralists and the nationalists and the libertarians and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's 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 sort of my bread and butter. But when you, you take a step back for a second and you think about it, one thing that basically every faction on the right that I can think of, um, at least rhetorically, puts a huge amount of value to the importance of work. Um, that work is inherently um, imbued with dignity and it is something that should be valued. And that work is incredibly important, um, not just for the economy, but for the character of the people. And, um, and to give people a sense of meaning and belonging. Now, obviously, there are, and, and to be fair to the left, big chunks of the left, believe the same thing too. You know, I mean, you, you might actually argue that this is sort of part of being an American is valuing work. And, you know, I don't believe, as I say in today's piece, I'm not a big believer in the idea that there's dignity in poverty, which is not the same thing as saying that poor people don't have dignity. Um, but I am a huge believer in the dignity of work. Uh, I often, you know, I'm not quite a workaholic, but I work a lot. And I often think I got that from my dad, who kind of was a workaholic. And I always feel like, um, even if I feel guilty about shirking family time or other things or exercise or whatever, I always get a sense of like fulfillment or justification if I'm working. 
and I enjoy my work for the most part, not every aspect of it. And, um, and so I feel kind of blessed about that, but I think this is a true thing all over the place. And obviously, as I was about to say, I think, um, this still feels wildly unnatural to me. Um, I have a spaniel on my feet and I, as far as she's concerned, um, I'm doing the human equivalent of soft barking at nothing. But um, um, when you look across, you know, so what was I going to say? All right. Obviously, the, um, the public policy um, implications or conclusions that come from valuing work very wildly, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders values work and he has a very different conception of how you implement that as policy. Um, at AEI, people like Michael Strain and Ramesh and Yuval Levin, they've done an enormous amount of legwork. And before Arthur Brooks left, um, this was his central hobby horse. Robert Doerr is now the president of AEI. Um, this was his thing when he was fighting poverty, working in New York City is the importance of work. Um, but there are different public policy proposals about how you do that and about how you reward work and um, how you get people into the workforce. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders believes in a $15 federal minimum wage. That might be, and that might be one of these things that has to be necessary after um, the crisis, at least for a little while. And my, my hunch is that once it's in, it's never going away. I'm still pretty skeptical of that. I'm just trying to keep an open mind about what we do to claw back after all of this. Um, but my principal position about the minimum wage is that it's essentially immoral. Um, because the most important thing you can give someone with, with little schooling or education, little, ex little to no experience um, working, is experience working. You know, uh, it's not for nothing that in the Middle Ages, if you... Um, wanted to give your kid a career, you actually went and found some tradesman, a mason or a carpenter or whatever, and you paid him to take in your kid to learn a trade. Because it was obviously that if you could, you know, teach a kid the trade, he was on a path for life. And the, particularly in an age of automation and computers and artificial intelligence and all that stuff, when you create barriers to entry at the bottom rung of the ladder, you are locking people out of the path by which they acquire the precious life skills um, of, you know, the basic stuff that, you know, as I've said before, you know, places like McDonald's teach, which is showing up on time, being courteous to customers, being cleanly, being efficient. I mean, all of these things, they do not come naturally to human beings, you got to teach them. Particularly, they don't come naturally to teenagers. Now, the, the problem I understand is that, you know, we have a lot of people who are trying to raise families, or at least allegedly trying to raise families, and live their lives permanently at that wage level. And that's a problem, and there are things to do about all of that. But, you know, basically telling employers at the at the entryway to a, the economy that a, a tablet or a robot is going to be cheaper than hiring some teenager and training them up it just strikes me as an immoral and bad idea. Um, now, I'm sure there are, I, I know there are contrary arguments to all that. I only bring it up and I went too long about it because, again, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, simply to say that everyone can agree that they value work. So, like, everybody agrees that we value most everybody agrees we value families, but what that means in terms of public policy arouses vast disagreements. Um, but getting back to the point of today's you know, newsletter, quote unquote newsletter, um, I should say quote on, never mind, <laughs> um, uh, is that we're seeing, this crisis is sort of illuminating the importance of an enormous number of jobs that prior to the crisis did not receive the kind of high status um, esteem that maybe they deserved all along, um, but that they certainly enjoying now. I mean, you see people really sincerely thanking delivery guys, and I mean, I'm, my over tipping of delivery guys 
is almost unsustainable at this point. Um, the thanking cashiers at the grocery store, how everybody is all of a sudden realizing that truckers have always been the life, you know, the lifeblood of the economy, and what they're doing is 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 heroic. And then, of course, there are the the healthcare workers. You know, doctors were always a high esteem profession. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. They certainly deserve all the praise that they're getting now. Um, but you know, nursing was not. And being an orderly was not. Uh, being a janitor was not. And um, the fact that now when these people come home from their, met their shifts at the hospital and people pour out their windows to cheer them, I think it's just wonderful. And I think it's one of these things that I hope has a longer um, lag time when we're done. And this is not, and again, what this means for public policy, that's a whole different conversation. I'm just talking about culturally, we're all of a sudden realizing that there are these people in our daily lives that, um, you know, we may be polite to, but that we don't really appreciate how vital they are to our lives working and how much we need them. And that got me on this thing about earned success, which I've talked about a, a bunch. I talk about it in speeches all the time. It's in my book. And I got it from basically from Arthur Brooks, uh, the former president of AI. And, you know, earned success is not, um, you know, a lot of people have a tough time at first grappling with it. And then a light goes off in their head and they're like, ah, I, I know what you mean. You know, earned success is not necessarily getting rich. There are a lot of miserable rich people. Some of them inherited their money. Um, you know, some of them just worked their way through the, you know, the meritocracy doing what was expected of them and realized that wasn't nearly as fulfilling as they'd hoped it would be. I can't tell you how many miserable middle-aged lawyers I know who just got sucked up into that career path because they thought, you know, it would be interesting. Um, I'm actually quite proud of myself that I've, you know, I've actually made some college kids cry <laughs> by explaining to them why they shouldn't go to law school if they don't want to be lawyers. Um, but, you know, what earned success is you can have earned success from being a lawyer or a doctor and all of these kinds of things. You definitely can. Um, but the success doesn't, isn't marked by the car you drive or the house you have or what you have in the bank. It's marked by the contribution that you make by the sense that your life mattered, that people needed you. Um, and so you can have, you know, a Wall Street guy who's richer than Cretius, who has very little earned success, and you can have a stay-at-home mom who is just brimming with earned success because not only do they take great satisfaction from raising kids and taking care of things, but also being pillars of their community and helping out at school and all of these various, you know, voluntary associations that women are so much better at than, than most men. And I, I don't mean this in a condescending way, uh, you know, it's not, and I don't mean in a sexist way. I just, you know, you can be a parish priest and have massive amounts of earned success, but very little disposable income. Um, you can have very little earned success from your day job, but you do your day job to make money. Um, and then you get massive amounts of earned success by leading a Boy Scout troop or um, by coaching Little League. Basically, the idea of earned success is just that that sense of satisfaction that you get from knowing that the people and things that you care about cared about you too and valued your existence. And Arthur tells this wonderful story about this guy, Rick. I have it in the G file where, you know, this guy was sort of a classic story of um, a guy who screwed up as a teenager, got involved in selling drugs, all these kinds of things, your basic cliche. Um, not to minimize it, but, you know, it's a familiar story, Went, ended up going to prison, got out of prison, and fell into a, uh, and found a, a, a bunch of nonprofit charities that, you know, help ex-cons get back into society. He starts out street, sweeping streets, gets a job as an exterminator. And Arthur tells a story about how he called him one day, you know, and said, you know, how's, how are things going? And, and, he reads him a text message that he got from his boss and it's the text message reads something like, you know, huge bed, bu bed bug problem at 65th and Madison. I need you right now. And 
And Arthur's like, so what? And th this guy Rick says, that's the first time in my life that someone had said they need me right now. It's that feeling of being needed, that if you just disappeared tomorrow, you'd be missed. And I think a lot of the problems that we have in society today derive from um, people not having that feeling, people not having this sense that there are others who care for them, that there are people who need them, that their accomplishments are important um, to the people who matter to them. They may not, you know, they may never end up in history books, who cares? Um, and they may never be, be famous or anything like that, but they'll, um, um, the, they'll know that they led a decent life and that they made a difference to the people and places that matter to them. And that feeling is just hugely important. I always, I, I always, I mean, I'm almost tearing up now just talking about it. Um, that scene in Saving Private Ryan at the end where the grown-up Matt Damon turns to his wife and says, tell me I'm a good man. Uh, that always gets me. I always get choked up about it. Um, I get it in part because I always think about my dad in all of that, who was not the most religious guy, um, was not the most wildly successful guy. He had a nice career and all of that. But he was a mensch who cared deeply and passionately about being a good man. And... Um, and that gets me to sort of why I think that, um, you know, in the book, in my in Suicide of the West, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I talk endlessly, or it felt endlessly to me, um, about the importance of institutions like the family, faith, community, neighborhoods, um, and the importance of character. Because you only get a decent society when you raise people from a very early age to be decent, to have rightly formed consciences, to have good notions of good character. And that stuff starts in the crib. It starts with parents who care and love their kids, who model good behavior, who set boundaries. And as I always talk about, turn the barbarians that were all born as into citizens. And, you know, they don't do it alone. Schools do a huge part of it. Communities do a huge part of it. Churches, synagogues, all of that. They do a huge part of it. But it, it works, as I, as I think I write today, I can't remember if it's still in there. It works from the bottom up. It moves up and out. It doesn't come from the top down. Uh, you know, the government cannot give you a sense of earned success. As I often say, you know, the government can, can increase your net worth. It can't increase your self-worth. And I think that the fundamental category error, and I've been, God, I've been talking about this for so long now, that um, so many people make, the progressives make, and now the, the sort of common good conservatives, the agent vermules, um, all these guys make, is they think that the government can love you. And it can't love you. It can't be your mommy or your daddy. It can't be your church or your synagogue. It can't be anything other than what it is. Now, it doesn't mean that the government can't do anything. I mean, even Friedrich Hayek talked about things like guaranteed health care and a basic minimum income. Um, and we can talk about all that another day. My only point is, is that I think there's a role for government, even the federal government, to make things easier or at least get out of the way for the little platoons of institutions of faith and family and friends to do their jobs, to envelop people with uh, concern in the sense or love and make them feel needed and wanted. Um, the problem is, is that the people at the, the intellectuals, and it's almost always intellectuals who push this stuff. I mean, I think a lot of people believe this stuff. It is made, I keep close watch on this because it bothers me so much how the claim that the president is the country's dad, as Chris Rock put it, um, goes back and forth between Republicans and Democrats depending on whose team is in power. And the problem is, it's never true. The government, you know, the president isn't our dad. You know, I mean, uh, 
I can live with George Washington being called the father of our country because he was the first president and he was the indispensable man and all that kind of stuff. But it's important to remember, it's just, it's, it's still metaphorical. But we do not, you know, and this gets back to the stuff I was talking with Kevin Williamson about. Um, the notion that the president is the father of the country, um, that we're electing a father, is just such a profound category error. Um, and it's a kind of um, idolatry. You know, I mean, longtime listeners have heard me do this spiel a lot, and I won't get deep in the weeds on it, but, you know, uh, you know Friedrich Hayek talks about the microcosm and the macrocosm, which is also, which is sort of what the German sociologists called the Gemeinschaft and the Gesellschaft. Uh, all that means is, is that there are, we live in at least two different worlds, right? We live in the world um, of our families, of our friends, of our, um, our meaningful human associations, where the people that we're talking about and thinking about have names and we have experiences with them and we have relationships with them. And then there's the extended order, right? This is the Gesellschaft. The way, you rem way I always remember the difference between the two is Gemeinschaft has mine in it. What is mine? What is the stuff that belongs to the world of Jonah Goldberg? It's the small world. And Gesellschaft is the larger world where we sell stuff. It's just my little memory technique because I often confuse German words. Um, but anyway, you know, in the, in, in the microcosm that Hayek talks about, we have just have very different rules. You know, I always tell college kids when I'm trying to explain this that in my family, I'm almost literally a Marxist, right? I don't charge my kids for, I don't charge my daughter for food. I don't charge her rent yet. Um, I don't, you know, I don't make her pay. I didn't make her pay for her clothes when she was five years old or any of that kind of stuff. Um, it really is from each according to your ability to each according to their need in the family. You know, if a stranger comes in the middle of the night and knocks on your door and says, I missed my flight. Can I crash on your couch? You're going to say, I don't think so. You know, if he walks in and starts eating from your fridge, uh, you're going to call the cops. But if your brother shows up in the middle of the night, you say, come on in, right? If your best friend from college shows up, you say, come on in. The rules are just simply different in the world of the little platoons in the microcosm. In the macrocosm, the rules are set up for how we deal with strangers, right? They're how we deal with people we don't know, that we don't have these special bonds with, that we don't have these reciprocal relationships with. And the great and glorious thing about liberal democratic capitalism is that it gets us out of all the old systems about how we dealt with strangers, starting with the oldest system, which is we bash them over the head with a rock. And my problem with um, Adrian Vermeule, and I did, it's, alas, it's behind the paywall, um, but I, I had my response to, to his, what I really think is a profoundly pernicious essay. It's a reckless essay. Um, um, I'm, I'm sure it's sincere. Everyone I talk to says he's a very nice guy, quirky and all that kind of stuff. I am sure he thinks he's writing it from the noblest um, motivations, but I, I think objectively it's borderline evil. And, um, you know, what he does is he, like so many others these days, uh, confuses the two. It's, you know, he, he gets the peanut butter of, of the Gemeinschaft in the, in the chocolate of the Gesellschaft. And he starts from the premise that all progressives do, or for the most part, all progressives do, what all socialists do, is this idea that the government can love you that we can do away with the market system and the rules of exchange that, that are non-zero sum, that let strangers deal with strangers in ways that are mutually beneficial. We can get rid of all of that and treat everybody like family. And that's why I hate all of the rhetoric about how we're all one American family. We're not. You cannot have a country of 330 million people where everybody treats everybody like family. If we did, you would have lots of strangers sleeping on your couch. You know, one of the best illustrations of this, which I love, and I'm sure I've told this story before too, is from Phil Graham when he was uh, running for president. Um, 
he was talking about his education policy. Uh, some, some woman, apparently, the story gets retold so many times, it's almost apocryphal now, but apparently it did happen in some form or another. Some woman asked him what his education policies were or what his approach to education was. And his approach was, he said, well, I start from the premise that uh, no one loves my children as much as I do. And this woman apparently says, that's not true. That's not true. I love your kids just as much as you do. And Phil Graham allegedly responds, oh yeah, what are their names? And it gets at a very profound point. You know, you, you, if you say you love someone who lives a thousand miles from you, that might be a very nice and beneficial theological sentiment. But basically you're saying you're in love with an abstraction. You only love people with names and faces that you know, or you only meaningfully love them. And... Um, Vermeule and these guys, uh, they start from the premise that no, no, no. Not only can we all love each other, but because, you know, like, but because we all love each other, we also can take this sort of parental approach to citizens and do stuff to them and for them for their own good. And we'll call it the common good. And um, and that's basically what I hear when I hear most of these people talk about the common good. What I really hear them saying is, we're going to do your, do stuff for your own good. And um, it works from this, they work from this assumption that the government can love you. Now, I, can, I do all sorts of things my daughter doesn't like because I love her. But the simple fact is, she's my daughter. And we're in, we are in the, the, the inner sanctum of the Gemeinschaft, of the microcosm where the rules are not um, the rules of the marketplace or the rules of courts or anything like that. I mean, I, if I abused her so much, that world can intrude on it, but we understand that we're supposed to have high walls of separation between these things. There's some sitcom where the lead dad says, in this family, this family is a dictatorship and I'm the dick. Um, I can't really say that because everyone knows that my wife is actually in charge in my family. But, um, but the point remains is that I can order my daughter around in ways that a stranger can't and a, and a stranger better not try. And I can order my daughter around in ways that the state can't order around a citizen because the state isn't the parent of all of us. And so the thing I like about the, and I make this point in the piece I wrote uh, for the Wednesday newsletter, um, Vermeule, you know, is basically a monarchist. You know, some people say that like, He's actually said it. I haven't read enough of him to um, confirm that, but his logic is that of a monarchist, right? He says that the Constitution should be read in such a way um, that gives the rulers all the power they need to rule well. Um, that's crazy talk. That is a, you know, and the only thing I admire about it is its honesty. You know, I've been, I've been arguing for years that most of the ideologies that we consider modern and progressive and forward thinking and all this kind of stuff are in fact reactionary. They're different kinds of tribalism, right? There's the Nazism is, is tribalism for one race and fascism was tribalism for one country and communism is tribalism for one class. Uh, they, by definition, divide up society into us and them and uh, loyalty to the tribe is the most important thing. And, uh, but the progressives at least figured out that they should, col you know, they should color their arguments in uh, scientific sounding jargon, modern jargon, right? Um, you know, Woodrow Wilson, when he was arguing for basically becoming, having kingly power um, and arguing that the Bill of Rights needed to go, um, he wrapped himself in the language of science saying that the old constitution was Newtonian and we need a new Darwinian conception. Ooh, Darwin, you know, makes it sound like this is this modern and advanced way of thinking when it's just fricking reactionary. And if I have to choose between uh, admitted reactionaries and deceitful reactionaries, I'll at least give points to the admitted reactionary. Vermeule, you know, he's like a 14th century French monarch, or at least a, a, a jurist for one. And I don't want any of that crap. And, um, and it bothers me. And so I don't think, I don't think I wrote this in this thing. I really don't think that he's going to get a lot of followers with this. 
Um, you know, this is the pro in the so in the in the Amari French Wars. Um, uh, I obviously I'm very much on the side of my friend and colleague David French, but the the argument that that there there are two assumptions that bother me the most about the Vermeule um, Amari position, the post-liberal integralist position. Um, one is a practical one, and one is um, a theoretical one. The practical one is just simply that, you know, these guys talk about as if they're building a movement um, and that it's fine for them to knock down all of the safeguards against uh, abuses of power, arbitrary rule, um, you know, uh, essentially neo-monarchism, um, because we're going to win and we care about the common good and... Um, and the highest good, because you got to name check Aristotle, and um, and therefore it's fine if we go ahead and and do this, right? Because we're going to win, and if we win, we're going to have the power, and we're not going to let anybody else have the power. The practical objection is, who are they freaking kidding? You know, uh, the the number of post-liberal integralist Catholics who have ever heard the phrase post-liberal integralism. Um, I, you know, forget about filling a football stadium. I would be surprised if it could fit a small elementary school gym. Uh, there's just not a lot of them. The idea that they're going to like start this movement that is going to pull in evangelical Christians and uh, even secular conservatives is just Looney Tunes to me. It, it's kind of like, you know, Vermeule and these guys, they sound like much more educated and erudite versions of, you know, the Berkeley radicals in the 1960s who thought that, you know, first we do the sit-in in the cafeteria. Second, we stage a protest outside of the president's office and we get, um, you know, uh, longer library hours and um, we don't have to sign up for selective service. And then the next step is total Marxist nirvana across the country, right? I mean, the, the connective, the leaps that you have to go from these sort of small bore salon arguments to actually succeeding are ludicrous. Um, and so that, that's sort of the practical objection. The more, I mean, the, the more theoretical objection, well, another pra a, a corollary to the practical objection is that they are literally making the arguments that conservatives have argued against when coming from progressives for a century now. You know, it, it's the progressive argument to say that we should just read in the common good into the Constitution, right? The living Constitution is this idea that whatever we need right now can be justified by the Constitution because the Constitution at the end of the day is like Felix the Cat's magic bag and you can find anything that you want in there in an emanation from a penumbra or whatever. And that's Vermeule's argument. He's just making it from this sort of weird, um, ultramontane Catholic aristocratic position. And I, it, and, and the fact that he is doing that I think does considerable damage. And the more people who join in, like Rusty Reno and all these people who join in to that, they are actually proving the the sort of the, the, the slanders and insults from the left that have been aimed at the right for a hundred years, right? I mean, you go back to Charles Beard, the progressive historian. He argued that the founding fathers... Um, created the constitution the way they did just to reward rich white men. And the only, and it was all done by self-interest, the pragmatic philosophers, uh, you know, and the pragmatic, you know, progressive intellectuals, John Dewey and Horace Kalin and, um, all these guys that most of you never heard of, they all argued that, um, philosophy, that ideology, all of these things were just ornamentation on naked self-interest. And Vermeule basically is, 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 is claiming to speak for the rest of us when he says anybody who believed in originalism about the Constitution, by which I just simply mean, you know, like believing the Constitution actually has a meaning and we should try to f stick with it because that's what, if, if you don't, what's the point of having one in the first place? 
Um, he's basically saying that anyone who bought into that, it was only because of the results that it yielded. And now that we've gotten those results, we should move on to um, uh, something post-originalism because we'll get more stuff that we want out of the Constitution. And that's not why I believe in originalism. If, if tomorrow some archivist found a bunch of letters from Madison and Hamilton and all those guys saying that actually the left's reading of the Second Amendment is the correct one and that uh, you don't have a right to a gun unless you're part of an organized and well-regulated militia, um, I wouldn't all of a sudden be against originalism. I'd be like, oh crap, maybe we need to amend the Constitution or something. But I, I, I don't believe the Constitutions have meaning and that they're important and that we should uh, stick to what they lay out simply because it yields stuff that I like. In fact, there's a lot of constitutional stuff that, you know, like free speech stuff that yields stuff that I don't like, but I at least recognize that it's protected by the First Amendment. Um, I despise, you know, First Amendment protections for Scientologists and all of that, but I'm willing to tolerate some of that stuff to protect the core idea and the core liberties. And if we need to get rid of these things. You amend the Constitution. You don't throw it away, right? Anyway, so he's leading, He's basically providing ammo to a much larger movement. And that's part of the practical problem, is that if, 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 that, if the Vermilion argument is successful in persuading people that conservatives don't actually care about, that, about this stuff on the merits, then... It gives a permission structure to progressives to do exactly what these guys are trying to do, which is just basically say, we're going to rewrite all of the rules of the game to benefit us and our agenda, because after all, everybody's just in it for their own ambition and their own agendas, and they don't really believe this stuff. They don't really believe you have a right to be wrong. They don't really believe that the First Amendment protects speech that they don't like. Um, so we don't have to pretend that way either. And... Um, if those guys get into power based on that argument, uh, the, you know, the religious right types who are flirting with this stuff are going to be in much worse shape. You know, Ramesh makes this point. I don't know if he's published it yet, but, you know, uh, originalism has helped enormously, uh, the pro-life cause. The idea that somehow we can throw away originalism and replace it with, um, whatever my side wants for the common good, you know, you have to say for the common good, like three times, like it's some magic incantation. Um, if we, if we, you know, give up originalism and the other side gets in power and they're no longer constrained by even paying lip service to the actual meaning of the constitution, you know, how is the pro-life position going to fare? Very badly. Because the, those people are, more numerous and they're and they're better at working institutions and they're better at politics than a bunch of guys who are like drooling at you know what they imagine 14th century France was like like kids looking through a candy store window um, and you know the reason why we have the system that we have is in was in part you know Ben Sass makes this argument all the time was to protect the liberties of minority religious sects and originalism is very useful for that any notion of common good jurisprudence isn't, or at least it gets, it's much more difficult to make that case when you're basically admitting you just think this stuff is all so much, you know, uh, gift wrapping around your real agenda. So, I mean, I think it's really dangerous. But it's also dangerous, getting back to the theoretical part, because at the end of the day, because government can't love you, if you work from the presumption that it can, what you're going to end up doing is imposing meaning on people, imposing, telling people that they need to, you know, Vermeule writes about how important hierarchies are, right? And how we have to respect people at different stations and stuff. That's very medieval. It's this idea that certain people are born at a certain rung on the ladder of life, and that's where they belong. That's serfdom. And it's deeply pernicious. And, I, I, and the fact that it's, it's helping in the process of making this stuff more bipartisan is really scary to me. One last point on this, and then I'll move on to the important stuff like dogs and get out of here, is um, 
where I was saying how I don't think that this stuff is actually going to persuade an enormous number of people, but I do think it's going to move the goalposts a little bit. It's going to influence the outer boundaries of our dogma in a bad way. Um, longtime readers of mine know I'm a big fan of dogma, um, good dogma, and and not just because it has the word dog in it. Um, and you know, dogma constrains the things that we consider to be permissible in a society. Uh, there's a great line from William F. Buckley where he was arguing with some libertarians about privatizing lighthouses. And, and the problem for Buckley, as Virginia Postrel pointed out to me years ago, is that there actually had been lots of privatized lighthouses. Um, but uh, Buckley's point was that, you know, even if he disagrees with the idea of privatizing lighthouses, we're in a better shape as a country if we're arguing about whether or not it makes sense to privatize lighthouses, because that makes it less likely that we're going to be talking about things like socializing medicine. And um, when Vermeule does this stuff, and when people you know, in his coterie does this stuff, it moves, it moves the Overton window, right? It makes certain arguments more plausible, more credible, more available for people down the road. And it does not seem to me at all far-fetched that if Donald Trump is re-elected, um, and if you know me, you know that my belief is that Donald Trump is not personally all that dedicated to originalism or strict constructionism or constitutional fidelity of any kind. He sees, he sees appointing judge, conservative judges as a transactional thing um, that the base likes him for. Um, but he could be persuaded to go another way. And you hear these rumors around that, you know, if, if there's another vacancy that he might appoint, you know, a loyalist instead of like a serious conservative jurist, you know, so maybe it'd be P Pam Bondi or Jay Sekulow or somebody like that. Vermeule's argument is perfectly consistent with doing that because those guys, you know, I don't want to be too pejorative. Maybe Jay Sekulow, you know, would actually rise to the occasion of the appointment, I have my doubts about Pam Bondi. But if you put a loyalist in there whose idea of the job is to rule in whichever way Donald Trump wants, well, that's basically what Vermeule is talking about when he says that constitutional interpretation should all be about finding ways for rulers to have the power to rule well. And I may disagree, and even Vermeule may disagree with how Donald Trump would rule, but he's creating a permission structure for the very idea that we should have rulers. And we don't have rulers in this country. You know, that's not, you know, the president isn't a ruler. He likes to talk as if he is, but he's not a ruler. We don't have rulers here. We hire people for defined periods of time to do specific tasks at various levels of government, not to be rulers. We let them get closer to rulers during a time of, during a time of crisis, because in a crisis you need, you know, expediency and efficiencies that during times of peace um, are, you know, you know, less necessary. You know, if, if, if we're invaded from aliens from outer space, you know, some of the, the normal rules are going to go out the window. That's fine. I mean, I get that. I mean, I, I think we need to have serious conversations about where those lines are drawn, but I, I certainly think the lines would move. But that's not Vermeule's point. Vermeule's point is that we just have rulers. You know, that we should have, we should be ruled for our own good, for the common good. And anyway, so my last point about the market, I didn't get into it in the piece too much, but I talked about how um, what the market does, what a free market does, properly regulated and all, you know, rule of law, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but what the free market does is it allows people to find their, their niche their path to earn success. It doesn't assign them a path. And the problem with assigning people a path is that the government is just not very good at figuring out what people are meant to be in life, right? In, in feudal societies, under serfdom, in communist countries, the government says, you should be a carpenter, you should be a bricklayer, you should be a poet. It assigns you your role. And sometimes I'm sure they get it right, right? But often they don't. And there's nothing wrong with being a bricklayer or a carpenter or a poet, but there's everything wrong with it if you don't want to be one of those things, if you want to be something else. 
you know, it kind of reminds me of, I've talked about this before. There are these great, ex, there's these great little exercises to teach kids how trade is mutually beneficial. And what you do is you, um, you hand out to the class, each kid gets a different kind of candy bar. And you don't ask them what they want, you just give them one. So one kid gets a Nestle's Crunch, another one gets a Clark bar, another one gets a $100,000 bar, um, another kid gets Goldenberg's Peanut Chews, which is a throwback for some of you. And, um, and then you ask them to fill out a little form. You say, okay, how sat from zero to 10, how satisfied were you with the candy that you got? And some kids write 10 because they just accidentally got, they were assigned the candy bar that they wanted. But some kids write zero or one, you know, and it averages out to like four or five across the room because it's a randomized distribution of candy. You then tell the kids, okay, everybody, you can trade with the other kids for the candy bar that you really want. And the kids run around, they say, what do you have? What do you have? And they trade the candy bars. And then they fill out the survey again. And the over the average level of satisfaction shoots up. It may not go away to 10, but it's like an eight or a nine and that kind of thing. And so here's the point though, is that the net amount of candy in the room didn't change. The material sum of candy, candy was the same, um, but the satisfaction was non-zero sum. Trade lets people get the stuff that they want to be happier. And the same thing works with labor markets and just a free society, is that you let people figure out what will give them satisfaction in life. And sometimes they'll be wrong. Sometimes they'll choose poorly. Um, and that's okay. So, and you learn from it. You know, you, people, you know, I, I hate being all treacly about this, but, you know, the journey is as important as the destination. And um, when you distribute, when the government takes it upon itself to decide where people belong in society, the average level of life satisfaction is going to be lower. Hello, Zoe. Sorry, dog's coming in. Um the average level of life satisfaction is just going to be lower than if you let people figure it out for themselves. And when I say for themselves, I don't mean as atomized, alienated, um, uh, autonomous individuals. I mean as people, right? I mean, like, every important choice and decision you made in your life is you, you, you consulted somebody about it. Your parents, your spouse, your friends, you know? That's where these things are figured out. That's because those people love you and the government can't love you. Only the people who know you can love you. The government, for the government, you're a number or an abstraction. For your best friend, you're your best, you're you. And their interest in you thriving in life are just so much greater than some random bureaucrat a thousand miles away, however sincere that bureaucrat might be. And the whole notion that Vermeule is pushing is the same one that the, the left pushed, which is that they know best. They know what's good for you. And that, you know, I'm not saying that they're all Nazis or they're all, you know, they all want to be tyrants or any of that kind of stuff. But what they're proposing will not contribute at the end of the day to human flourishing the way that it should. And that doesn't mean every one of their ideas are bad. Um, I, I gather that People like Vermeule care a lot about, you know, subsidiarity and local communities and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, but as the big picture, they start from the wrong end of the telescope. And they start from the assumption that the government can love you and that the government can know what's best for you. And that's, you know, you don't have to call it evil, but it's just wrong. All right. So um, last thing. Uh, I had a fun time talking to Cass Sunstein. Sorry about the audio on that one. You know, he didn't have um, the perfect setup for the way we do things, but I think it was, I, I understand it was passable. I never listened to the podcast myself. I was there for it and I hate, I, I hate watching myself on TV. I hate listening to myself in these things. I can't tell you how awkward I feel right now just doing this. Um, and, you know, I appreciate the people out there who say I don't sound all that awkward, but. I'm inside my head. And so when I hear myself frumfering and grasping for stuff, I relive the experience of the awkwardness in ways that you don't. So just take my word for it. Um, anyway, I, I really love talking to Cass Sunstein about a whole bunch of stuff. And we are in talks about trying to do a book together about dogs. Um, I am 
fascinated by dogs, as you might have guessed. Um, I think that um, people don't really appreciate the depth. I mean, talk about earned success. You know, dogs, um, they want to be part of your family um, in ways that other animals aren't and don't. Some can be tricked to one extent or another to, you know, seeing you as a member of the pack or the herd or whatever. But dogs are wired to be with us and they want to be with us. And, um, and they kind of, there's something about them that is a little bit of a mirror of our best selves, right? Because they don't care about what, how much money you have. They don't care what your politics are. They care about you being there, right? I mean, this is sort of like the advice I give to um, people who are having their first kid. Uh, quality time's important, you know? I, I, I don't think quality, I mean, quality time with your family is important, but quantity time, just the sheer amount of time you spend is important too. Um, and with kids, it's important for a whole bunch of reasons that it's not for with dogs, um, you know, with kids, you never know when that special moment of connection or insight, um, is going to come through, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many sort of trivial walks I was on with my dad that have stuck with me forever. Um, and, you know, and I like to think that spending lots of time with my daughter is the same thing. It also is a sign of, it's, it, it is reassuring about, you know, who you are in their life. If you can spend a bunch of time, even if it's doing just silly stuff with them. With dogs, it's a little different. It's not, you're not really worrying about, you know, beyond training, character formation, um, or anything like that. And unfortunately, one of the great drawbacks of dogs is that you tend to outlive them. So you're not trying to, you know, cultivate an image that they will remember you as, but they just want to be with you. They want to spend time with you. And, um, and they're a good reminder of that that sense, you know, and sort of in the same way that you can't love an abstraction, all dogs love their humans as long as they're not abused, right? Um, uh, but they love their humans. They don't love every human. They love the humans they know. And, you know, and some like Pippa, they, they love a lot of humans, you know. Pippa's favorite, one of Pippa's favorite things when we go on a walk is to run up to the front door of various houses on the street and she somehow expects that the door will open and if she puts a tennis ball at their feet, they'll throw it for her. And sometimes it's actually happened. And it's really funny when she runs up to like construction workers or people in the park and drops a tennis ball at their feet and is like, let's do this. Um, and they don't do it. You know, Pippa can't understand that. But as a general rule, my point remains that, you know, dogs are pack animals and we're part of their pack. And they remind you of... The fact that so many of the things that are really important to life, you can't put a price tag on. They're entirely in the Gemeinschaft. shaft. They have nothing to do with the gazelle shaft. And, um, and I think they keep you grounded because they need you. And if you're not feeling needed anywhere else in your life, it feels great to come home and feel needed by them. And I, you know, I've spent the last two weeks alone with these guys, gals, and, um, it's become all the more acute and, so anyway, I, I could talk about dogs endlessly. I think I'm going to have more podcasts about dogs. If you don't like it, I don't care. Um, and uh, other than that, I think I'm done. I've certainly gone on too long. And um, let me know if this still works. I kind of feel like I'm just recycling my greatest hits to a certain extent, and that feels cheap and inauthentic. Um, but I, you know, the feedback was very positive, so... Um, I'm giving it another try. Uh, please keep coming back to the dispatch. Um, if you're not a paid member, um, you know, you can usually find on my Twitter feed or the remnant Twitter feed excerpts from, you know, the, the midweek G file thing. Um, if you are a paid member and you want to forward emails around from, you know, that's great by us for marketing purposes. Uh, we want to get the word out. We're very proud of what we're doing. It's a lot of work. Um, and these are trying times, so anything you can do to help, really appreciate it. We're still learning as we go, because again, I guess the journey is as important as the destination. So with that, I'll see you next time.